You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 018, where I continue my conversation with Peter Cambolin, co-founder and CEO of Systematic Alpha Management. This episode is sponsored by Saxo Bank and Swiss Financial Services. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Tell me, Peter, how many markets do you trade altogether and how many combinations of spreads do you have in your portfolio? Yes, well, uh, we trade approximately 20 to 25 different markets that include major global equity indices, major currencies, and we just use three commodities for hedging. Um, we trade about 20 to 30 different spread combinations, but each spread we trade in a variety of different sub-markets, uh, up to maybe 20 actually. Uh, what that means is that, let's say you have a spread that fluctuates, right? Uh, goes up and down, etc. cetera. Uh, we apply different uh, logic, different rules when we place trades because we don't know the, the, the sine wave that a spread could experience you know, you know, moving up and down uh, is not always the same. The amplitude of the move could be different, the time it takes could be different, etc. So we have models that on average would hold positions, let's say, three hours. Some other models will have holding times of, you know, let's say, 10 hours, and others will hold somewhat longer. So we try to exploit uh, short-term mean reverting moves in the spreads and longer-term mean reverting moves in the spreads, all within, let's say, day and a half, two days. Uh, and what's interesting is that by diversifying our holding time, uh, the returns that are generated they are often uncorrelated to one another. So let's say we could be trading S&P FTSE British pound spread that holds for three hours, and it will have almost 0% correlation to the same spread that fluctuates the same, but which we would trade using a different uh, holding time model. So this is one way to diversify. We have other ways to diversify uh, our trading. Uh, for example, this is getting more technical, but uh, we look at so-called intraday seasonality of the volatility of the spread. Okay. What that means is that there are three points within a day when volatility is elevated. At the early morning hours in Europe, vol is high in the spread because S&P could be mispriced. Mm -hmm. Late trading hours in US, vol is high because European markets could be mispriced because it's for them after hours. And around 9.30, 10 a.m. New York time, vol is high because that's when most price action is taking place. You know, news come, come out and that's when volatility is typically elevated during the day. So we have models that are taking into account these intraday seasonalities of the volatility. Again, for a long-term CTA, these intraday moves are totally irrelevant because they hold positions for day, for, you know, for, for months, for weeks, etc. If we hold positions for hours, it's extremely important to take into account intraday seasonality. Sure. So this is another way how we have different signals, different models, uh, you know, that we uh, trade. Sure. And we have a number of others. So my point is that we are. To answer your question, we trade anywhere from 20 to 30 different individual spreads, yeah. but each one is traded in up to 20 different ideas or sub-models. So the yeah. total number of signals, individual signals that we monitor and trade is about 200. Excellent. Now, from what you've explained, it appears to me at least that part of the way you're getting out of a trade is based on your target being reached or the spread coming back to the expected yeah. level. 
Um, but you also talk about uh, average holding periods of three hours or six hours or so on and so forth. Right. What what triggers the exit if you haven't reached your profit level and you haven't been stopped out? Is it a time? Is there a time imagine, exit? We don't have a time stop, but imagine okay. a moving average or, or mean of the spread. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can, if you're look back window for the moving average is long that that moving average will be changing very slowly you know every minute sure. going but if your look back window is very short let's say it's in one hour or three hours uh it will be moving with the spread very rapidly so if the spread goes up the moving average will go up as well so our so-called uh fast model that the ones that hold only three hours on average, they have very short look back window for estimating the mean or, or moving average of the spread. Right. Okay. Which means that if the spread goes up and then there's a, there's a small reversal, it will touch the trigger point. Sure. That's how it's done. So we don't have a particular time stop. We, we tested that idea. It doesn't work as well as as uh, uh, trying to come up with different, you know, moving average, uh, you know, look back window uh, to, 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 you know, to estimate your fair value of the, of the, of the spread itself. Sure. Now, uh, staying just again a little bit with the, the trade and the model and so on and so forth, I wanted to ask you about how do you size your position? How do you, how do you work out you know how much to 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 put on uh, in terms of these uh, signals. Well, the way it works is from the top top to bottom. We know our overall assets under management sure. figure. We also know uh, what is the maximum exposure we would like to have if, let's say, all the models hit the trade in the same direction. This is our you know, some some target that we have that we will not breach. Sure. Uh, that def- defines you know, how much risk we would like to trade overall. Then we look at three geographical regions. I mentioned before we, look, we trade Asian spreads, sure. Asia against US, Europe against US, and US against US, or mm-hmm. Canada is part of the North America. So uh, we would break our risk among the three geographical regions, and that is done based on uh, historical returns, our expectation of returns, quality of the returns, and uh, for historical reasons, I would say 55 to 70 percent uh, uh, has been allocated to the European spreads. You know, anywhere from zero to 10 percent to Asia, and the balance is North America. Once we determine that, and that review is done roughly every three months, um, we uh, assign uh, individual uh, risk level to each country that we trade within a particular zone. Let's say in Europe, we currently trade UK, Switzerland, France, Germany, and Eurostax 50, so five markets. Mm-hmm. So risk is assigned to each one, uh, maximum risk again. Again, depending on our you know, historical PNL, our backtests, and various other uh, tools that we use, and then within each country, we have a number of different signals spreads, as I described before. Mm-hmm. It could be up to twenty to thirty for each country, and then risk amongst uh, these individual signals is is uh, allocated using an optima optimizer that we use uh, that looks at uh, one minute real return of these spreads over the last four or five years, and it tries to assign more risk towards those models that not only produce best returns, but also that are uncorrelated to the other models in the, in the same set of portfolio. Mm-hmm. So we do not have even risk allocation, you know, to answer your question. Sure. Have certain preferences in terms of the, you know, geographical zones, in terms of the particular countries. For historical again reasons, we like US UK spreads the most because they are most stable and most highly correlated. Yeah. Uh, and then within each country, we allocate risk based on our uh, optimizer that we have 
uh, you know, build proprietary things. And and how many how many trades do you end up doing in a day on average uh, with all these? Uh, yeah, so out of models? roughly two hundred signals, uh, maybe you know, depending on the volatility. So on average, we would have maybe twenty trades a day. Okay. Uh, most of the models actually stay in cash. So what that means is that if let's say S and P and FTSE are fairly priced in relation to one another, they're moving exactly or more or less the same, up and down, there's no opportunity for us to trade at all. We will right. stay out. We will not have any positions at all. While we could be detecting a lot of positions or trades in, let's say, a Swiss SMI, uh, Swiss franc, S&P trade. Uh, so if you look at our portfolio, day you know, after day, uh, it's not stable. It's, it's changing all the time. We are not invested in all these markets uh, all the time. Uh, we are arbitrageurs so if we detect the mispricing we will you know, come in and, and you know, provide liquidity sure and and you you gave a good example before where you had say you know the, the FTSE the S&P and then you had the currency side to things which yes. you mentioned was kind of a I think you mentioned the word hedge uh, component um, is there is there all is there always in I mean is there always this hedge uh, component in 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 the models and if so when you look at the pnl overall yeah. how much of the pnl of return stream actually comes from the, the the hedge component of 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 the spread if if i can put it that way when we look at the pnl we look at the pnl for the for the, for the full spread we do not try to uh understand or we don't care if the PNL came from the equity market or the, for the currency market. Okay. Uh, for example, we could be losing on the currency leg, but that currency leg will generate extra return in via the uh, index leg. Uh, so uh, we don't we don't dissect the returns coming from all three legs of the spread. We look at the spread itself. Okay. And um, in in terms of risk open risk i mean i don't know uh, whether it's possible to to give an indication but if you operate st- stops on on all your positions which is my understanding um can you say something to the point about what is kind of the daily open risk budget meaning if everything i mean because you might use valued risk i don't know as as kind of a, 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 a something you look at but my experience is that valued risk works great uh, until the point when it doesn't work, and it usually is when when you know uh, the markets get very volatile and and there's a crisis. Um, so, can you talk about how much open risk, meaning if everything got stopped out in a day, what kind of risk budget do you run? Well, let me talk about the average risk that we're running and the sure. worst outcome that we've had over the last fourteen years. Sure. Uh, so the average exposure in our single leverage share class of the fund, we have single and double leverage. So in the single leverage share class, which has a 7% roughly annualized uh, standard deviation. Okay. Uh, we are on average 60% in notional exposure, long 60 short. So let's say on a $10 million account, we would have positions, notional exposure of six million long, six million short. Sure. That's on average. Yeah. That translates into a margin to equity ratio of about 12%. Sure. Why so high? Because we have to pay full margin for the long side. We spend about 5% on the long side, 5%, let's say, for the short side, and about 1%, 2% for the currency or commodity hedge on top. Sure. That's how we. Uh, arrive to a 12% average margin to equity. And and this margin to equity cannot be compared to a long-term directional, let's say, trader. Of course. They pay, you know, uh, one margin for one position and it's in a direction, you know, directional position. Sure. Um, so uh, our stop loss levels are set around uh, you know, roughly 2% from the uh entry price so let's say we we put on a, a spread position we 
can potentially lose 2% of the risk given to that spread, not on the portfolio, but to that particular spread. Uh, in terms of the worst day that we've had, uh, and I think it happened in 2008, when uh, I remember S&P was moving by 40 points in maybe one minute. <laughs> wow. Yeah, there were days like this. Uh, so the worst daily PNL was minus 2.2% realized. Um, but on average, our you know, daily returns are 0. 0.2, 0. 0.3, 0. 0.4% up, 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 down days. Sure. Now, I wanted to shift gear a little bit, but staying on the point about sort of risk, um, I want to touch upon drawdowns because, um, you know, um, Perhaps uh, a lot of people are not aware of it, but you know, CTAs in particular spend most of their time in in some kind of a drawdown, and probably only <laughs> uh, and probably only about twenty percent of the time at you know reaching new equity high. So, so I wanted to um, I wanted to understand a little bit about the drawdowns you've seen, you've experienced. Um, whether uh, you know what you've learned from them, I know you mentioned earlier you've you made some changes after one of the drawdowns, and what you've learned from them, um, and also uh, whether you think the drawdown profile of the program um, has changed with the changing of the environment uh, that we've seen uh, in the last few years. Yes, one of the uh, important modifications that we introduced in 2011 was um, a deleveraging mechanism where if we reach a 5% drawdown, peak to trough, intra-month, not necessarily at the end of the month, sure. we will start reducing risk. Uh, initial deleveraging is done by 25%. Uh, and it, it is done in those market or spreads that are causing the drawdown. Okay. Uh, if we are reaching a seven and a half percent drawdown uh, on the portfolio level, we will increase the deleveraging to fifty percent, mm -hmm. and then the deleveraging is done across all the spreads, not necessarily only the ones that are losing money. Okay. Uh, and by doing that, we are basically trying to control the depth of the drawdown because if you're trading with less risk. Uh, it's harder to, to, to lose more and more money. Uh, of course, on the other hand, it's, 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 it's harder to, uh, recover the losses. And, uh, you know, our policy is that we will not wait for months until we, uh, uh, the, the risk back. Uh, if we're seeing a recovery, if we're seeing some, you know, positive statistics, we will slowly, uh, put the risk back on. You know, with the expectation that uh, the recovery will be, you know, in full force, and we will, you know, quickly recover from a drawdown. So uh, we believe that such deleveraging approach is uh, helpful, especially during crisis times, because you know sometimes there will be these so-called black swan events, like for us in 2011, which were never part of the history, and you know. Um, estimating them or predicting them is sometimes next to impossible. So if you don't have these deleveraging mechanisms, you could be having major problems, you know, in your, uh, in your drawdown. <laughs> sure, sure. So this is, this is uh, what we're doing um, following 2011 uh, experience that we had. And in 2011, our drawdown reached 19% uh, at the worst point, although we ended the year minus 11% uh, percent, uh, because we had a strong recovery in the fourth quarter of 2011. By the, day, by the way, that was the time when most other CTAs were entering the drawdown. We were already recovering from ours. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and the re-leveraging, going back to normal leverage, is that also a fully automated process or do you have to have a little bit of a of uh, a, a, a role in setting the the uh, the leverage uh, because you said you're looking for some improvements it's i would say it's more art than science we would look at which countries which spreads are behaving back to normal which ones are generating positive returns and we would re-leverage those first 
And uh, then if we see recovery across the board, we would put the standard risk back to all the models. Um, it's very difficult to, I would say, to fully systematize it, although we try to use as much data, as much tests and analysis as, as we possibly can. Sure. Another question relating to to drawdowns, and 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 this goes probably more to to you and 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 your partner as as human beings, and that is that the drawdowns certainly add to the emotional roller coaster that uh, you know we all go through, and and I wanted to ask you how you how do you balance that when you go through a drawdown, and maybe in particular if you wouldn't mind. Um, take us back to 2011 a bit, because what 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 seems to me to have happened is that you you go through your drawdown, which which we all know is 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 a difficult thing because you don't want to lose money for your clients, but at the same time you subsequently see uh, huge outflows of of assets, which I can only imagine really adds to to that emotional roller coaster. How did you cope with that situation and? And, and and stay on track because clearly your performance uh, recovered um and but but just talk me through that because i think there's so much to be learned from from this yeah we fully recovered from that drawdown in uh, july of 2013 and um we ended last year at a new you know fresher even fresher new high water mark yeah um again very few ctas can, can say that they have Absolutely. My returns. Well, I would say that, you know, on a personal level, the feelings that we had entering 2011 before the drawdown was, you know, if we could survive 08 market environment when VIX went to 90 at some point. So our models were trading in totally out of sample environment. You know, we uh, we did not have prior data to backtest the models during the times when this is at 90. And they continued to perform extremely well. We had this sense of inv- invincibility, in a way. We, we yeah. thought, how, what other <laughs> market conditions possibly could happen out there that will derail our program? Sure. If, if we were able to do well in 2008 and 2009. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the European debt crisis hit, which we, you know, was impossible for us to predict or to, to prevent. And a uh, totally new risk factor was introduced, which is credit defaults, you know, swaps on, on, on certain countries that, you know, we do not trade credit default swaps. Sure. By definition, they're illiquid and we never had to in the, in, 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 you know, in the prior years. So, uh, so, when we were going through our initial drawdown 2011, first, you know, couple of months, two, three months, we thought that, well, once in a while, you know, we do have negative months. Obviously, we have some, you know, bad streaks of returns and we did not, we did not, uh, think that we could potentially have a drawdown that would last for six months. And then after two, three months, we realized that this is something totally different. You know, we have to, address the situation uh, and uh, it took us some time to come up with some you know modifications and ideas that we introduced uh, in early September of 2011 so it took us you know probably two months uh, I wish we could come up with them earlier uh, but we just you know it, you know it, it, it takes it, time it, it, it takes time yeah, yeah. Uh, plus I wish we had these deleveraging rules then that would prevent us from, you know, uh, experiencing such a deep uh, drawdown. Uh, but again, I, I think I mentioned this point before. The experience of 2011 made us stronger as a firm, yeah. I believe. And even though we have less assets under management, as a firm, we are a better manager. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I would, you know, if, if there's some you know, new managers coming out with two or three year track records uh, that look outstanding. Um, I would be very cautious because, um, you know, every manager that has a 10 year track record had difficult time at some point. 
And uh, the question is, how do they react uh, to a drawdown? How do they react to a situation like this? And are they strong enough to withstand? Are they smart enough to, to improve? <laughs> yeah, and sure. uh, in our case, uh, you know, we had, before 2011, we did have one drawdown of about 10% in late 2007, early 2008. So th- that was our second drawdown. And we, we recovered from both. Uh, in a very, you know, strong way. Uh, and uh, my point is that going forward, like for example, in 2014, right now, we are having a drawdown. Um, and I believe that, you know, if you, if you believe in the manager, if you, if you believe in their ability to, to stay in the game, uh, the best time to invest actually is not at the new high water market. The best sure. time to invest is, uh, uh, during a drawdown. Uh, if that manager has a long enough track record, and uh, have shown an, an ability to, to, to improve and to, to recover. Uh, so, you know, we are at the point, at this point right now, we are speaking with our clients and we are trying to explain to them that uh, this is um, maybe a good time to, to, to allocate. Sure. Uh, you, you don't need to wait until we have another uh, new high watermark, maybe. <laughs> sometime in the future sure no i i, I agree peter um just just one final question on drawdowns before we 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 move on were there any time during um 2011 when you were experiencing this drawdown due to circumstances that you in a sense had not foreseen and could not foresee um that you doubted the system and said you know if we're going to be dealing with these kind of situations, you know, countries going default, et cetera, et cetera, maybe this is not the right way of, 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 of approaching it. Or or how did you convince yourself that actually it was? Well, we had a choice in 2011 uh, to shut down uh, because, you know, we made good money and uh, we had a choice whether to continue or to shut down. And, uh, the adjustments and improvements that we introduced in September 2011, even though we continue to see outflows, we really believed at that time that these changes will produce good, good things for us in the future. And uh, we strongly believe in our ability to recover, and uh, that is exactly what happened. Uh, but when you go through a drawdown, especially if it's a lengthy one, of course, you know, you feel doubts and you feel like, oh, my God, this strategy doesn't work. And that's how investors think also. They, they, they think this strategy worked before and it doesn't work now and it will never work again in the future. <laughs> and, sure. uh, what we can see on our end is that it doesn't work now, but we do not agree with the decision. It will never work in the future. So, yes, if we're losing money, that is correct. The strategy is not working now. Absolutely but the difference is investors often believe that it will never work again. While we strongly believe, because we have inside knowledge, we have inside, you know, skills and, and maybe better, better understanding of what we do, sure. that this strategy will perform again and it will become, you know, again at some point one of the best strategies that we can invest in. Yeah. And, uh, so with this idea in mind, you know, we continued, we improved, we, we fought, we work extremely hard. You know, we work around the clock, 24 hours. Uh, again, it's a lot easier to take a trade and, and uh, two months later <laughs> to realize a loss or a gain. In our case, we, you know, every day we work extremely hard. Yeah. And, uh, at the moment, for example, you know, we are having a drawdown, the strategy at the moment over the last you know, few months was not working, but it doesn't mean it will, it will not work again. We, we strongly believe that it will work again. And uh, if we have investors that are convinced on that, they would be a long-term investors, you know, and they will benefit at the end of the day because if you buy at the top and sell at the low, you know, by definition, you will lose money. Sure. <laughs> Definitely, definitely, and um, and obviously part of part of your insight, part of the reason why you 
have this strong belief in the strategy is down to research and research is actually the next thing i wanted to uh, to touch upon um now research is an interesting thing because uh investors they want managers to continue to innovate but they don't want managers to change so how do you balance these two things uh and and how does research really work uh inside your firm we're doing some things that very few managers i believe are doing we are estimating our parameters not necessarily on uh, in sample data but uh, we try to uh, use walk, walk forward out of sample tests and uh, scenarios to test how robust our parameters are because the biggest uh, criticism of quants is that they tend to over optimize their parameters that look quite excellent on paper and then they start trading it and the return is very different so in order to avoid that we are using uh, different tools that we developed in-house here to make sure that uh, our parameters that we choose are not just some overfit you know, results they are based on a lot more fundamental reasons why this should continue working. Uh, so this is uh, the main area for us, to, to make sure that the models are robust, make sure that mean reverting statistical tests that we do are still looking uh, good. Um, and we look at uh, each country individually, we look at uh, how these mean reverting tests change over time. For example, for the full, let's say, 10-year history or for the last three years or for the last six months. And uh, we, what we ideally want to see, we want to see no deterioration uh, in, in the mean reversion tests because for us, mean reversion is the key of the game. And, uh, you know, that's what we're seeing. If we're seeing some signs that things are changing, uh, that's when we would potentially deleverage our allocation to a particular country. Uh, that's why these once in two, three months rebalancing our risk is so important because uh, uh, once in a while we have to intervene and, and make certain adjustments. Now, I'm certainly no expert in, in, in mean reversion um, as a strategy. So um, help me understand how, how quickly can these kind of relationships change and how how easy is it to or difficult is it to realize that something has changed which is a little bit more structural or fundamental however you put it than just you know something that's just gone you know a little bit differently for for a short period of time well when we estimate hedge ratio Again, I think I mentioned it before. We have a certain look-back window. Yeah. And um, if the hedge ratios... And by, by the way, we are recalculating hedge ratios daily. Okay. Uh, if the hedge ratios are changing rapidly in a certain direction, that means that markets are no longer correlating or there's a you know, breakdown in, in, in the relationship between the two. So on the one hand, by estimating head ratios daily and, and adjusting them, we are making sure that we're trading the most recent relationships between the markets on one hand. But on the other hand, it, it could be an indication for us to maybe move away from that market altogether. I'll give you an example. Uh, a long time we traded Nikkei, Japanese Yen, S&P relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was one of our best relationships, you know, in the first you know, 10 years of our existence. Yeah. Uh, over the last almost two years now, we, we noticed that correlation of Nikkei to the rest of the world really disappeared after the new economic policies that were introduced in Japan. Right. So uh, instead of waiting to lose money before we cut the risk, we actually uh, did it before that happened. We, we, we noticed that Correlations are weakening, the spreads are no longer stable. Or the other way to explain it, hedging Nikkei with S&P no longer works. Right. We, we stopped trading that 
relationship, although overall it produced, you know, before that, very strong returns for us. And so, so on one hand, we try to be dynamic in how we hedge as we trade based on most recent relationships. On the other hand, if these changes are too strong, we will ultimately uh, cut the risk and stop trading. Sure. And and just one question to that example that you just mentioned. Now, clearly you would have noticed in the data that the yeah. relationship between the Nikkei and the S&P were, was changing. But in order for you to stop trading that relationship, do you have to go and look for the fundamental reason why it stopped working? And in this case, looking at abenomics as the cause? Often we would look at the data first. And then we try to explain to ourselves looking at the fundamental analysis. It's rarely the other way around. Because if there's some fundamental analysis that tells you, you know, one thing, but data is continuing telling you something totally else, we would believe the data. We would not believe the fundamental analysis. Sure, sure. So for us, data is number one. And then, of course, we try to explain to ourselves, you know, what's the meaning of the data? Uh, but we, we trust the data first. Yeah, yeah. Now, just um, looking a little bit on, on, on the business side of, uh, of things, um, you know, clearly uh, you and, and, and your partner is, uh, is, is, is crucial to, to, to this, but do, do you consider yourself as a firm to, to have a, a sort of a key man uh, risk or is it all so automated that actually to a large degree um you know the company could could uh, continue uh, without one or both of you i would say you know for six months or so you wouldn't you know, notice a change sure uh, either one of us years <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, ultimately clients have liquidity sure you know, our clients have weekly liquidity managed accounts have daily liquidity uh, so they can very easily take their money uh, away from us. Uh, but uh, yeah, everything is automated. Everything is we have you know certain systems in check. How to do the research? How to do even marketing, etc. So uh, longer term, of course, you will feel, feel an impact, but not in the first three to six months. Sure, sure. Now. What's interesting, um, and I, I wouldn't say it's becoming the 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 norm, but but certainly a lot of managers have chosen to um, set up their business, uh, you know, a little bit outside uh, the uh, financial hubs. Um, but you're right there; you're located in the middle of uh, of of New York. Um, do you think being right in the center of the financial world helps you in any way, or? Does it not really matter where you would be going to the office every day? I think it helps. Um, it's easier for clients to come see us when they are in New York. Uh, we do have a lot of meetings in the office. Um, you know, plus the overall energy of the city, the competitive spirit of <laughs> yeah. you work harder every day. So, I mean, our lease, for example, expires in May of next year. And uh, we plan to stay in New York, although it would be cheaper to, to go to New Jersey, for example. Sure. Where we do have actually a secondary office, uh, you know, as, as a backup facility. But I believe staying in New York is, is, is very important. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think I may know the answer to the next question, but I want to ask it anyway, because I think, again, it's, it's, it is important for people to better understand. And that's really the you know, the challenges that you face as a business owner and as a, as a manager. And and what would you say the biggest challenge has been in the last 10, 14 years for, for you? And and um, and how did you overcome that? Well, the biggest challenge is, I would say, to first convince clients that what we're doing is very, very beneficial to their portfolios. And uh, it's quite upsetting to see them leave sometimes after you know a drawdown because if they 
believe in the story, they believe in the long track record, and if they believe in our uncorrelated properties, you, they should expect us to have sometimes negative months when their other managers are doing fine. Um, so what we've noticed is that they like the uncorrelated property of your program when you make them money and everyone else is losing money. Sure. <laughs> but when everyone else is making money and you're flat to negative, all of a sudden they don't like it anymore. Yeah. Uh, which is, I guess, it's a human uh, nature. Uh, but we highly, highly appreciate those investors that that are for the long haul, and we hope that in the future we will get more of those managers, especially given the fact that we have 10 years of audited track record in the fund. Uh, I think smart institutional investors uh, will recognize it and uh, will have a better uh, understanding of our returns going forward. Yeah, I mean, and I think on that note, which is quite interesting, and I think, I mean, I think we, you know, as an industry, maybe we haven't been good enough at explaining to investors, uh, you know. Um, why they should invest with us because it's been the same arguments that's been used and and clearly they're not strong enough because we we know that money has been flowing out and and i think actually today in in our conversation uh what what you've done so far um uh, you know is quite important because uh in my experience at least a lot of people a lot of managers are very good at explaining how they make money and 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 what they do but they never really explain why they do it. And I think that's actually one of the uh, challenges for, for, for the CTA industry is to become better at explaining the why. Because I think if people understand why you do things and agree with them, they're more likely to, uh, you know, as you say, stay through the good times and the bad times because they have something that they truly understand as to, you know, why people do what they do but anyway that's just a, my own observation i wanted to i wanted to ask you a, a slightly different question and that is uh, you know this industry started as a very us dominated industry and certainly most of the famous managers uh, you know 10 15 years ago were predominantly based in the us but it seems to me that the uh, the last 10 years european managers have actually um, you know, created uh, much bigger firms than many of the U.S. Um, legends have. Do you have any observation as to why the European managers have become uh, more favored or have been able to grow their businesses much better than than you in the U.S. based managers? Maybe it's related to the investors and investors' appetite. Um, because when we were starting the fund, uh, uh, up until 2007 or 8, most of our clients were European investors. Okay. We gathered U.S. Uh, assets, you know, after we had five years in the fund, roughly. You know, in, okay. In, uh, in, a, uh, in uh, you know, in track record. So, uh, I think uh, European investors are, all, are more open-minded. Um, they're willing to look at different things, and uh, maybe that's related to that. Uh, that that's just from our experience. Uh, other than that, I, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> Europe have uh, you know you know smarter brains. Than <laughs> people, but it's a joke. Sure, 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 sure. Now. Um... I've got a couple of more questions in this section, and then I wanted just to go on to the to the final uh, area of my questions. But um, but I wanted to ask you firstly. You know the CTA industry well. I accept you do things uh, in a different space compared to many other CTAs. But if you were going to ask a question uh, of my next guest uh, here at Top Traders Unplugged uh, about their strategy or their firm, what would you ask them? Well, I would ask the trend following CTAs, um, why do they think trends will develop and the strategies will start working again after five years of you know, fairly 
bad returns. Um, that would be my first question. Second question would be related to, you know, where do these returns were coming from five years before, you know, if we go back to before 2008? Uh, because as you know, CTAs do not use most of their cash for trading. The margin to equity on average, let's call it 15%. Sure. Which means that 85% on average is sitting in cash or allocated to, uh, some, you know, instruments that produce some yield. And, uh, before 2008, uh, we all know that, uh, if you were to buy a T bill, let's say 90 day T bill, it would pay you three, four, and at some point even 5% return. Annualized. Sure. Uh, over the last five years, you know, returns on cash holdings went, you know, are zero. Um, so my biggest question is to, 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 you know, to, to CTAs in general, uh, what percentage of their gains before 2008 came from, you know, cash returns? And, uh, in my estimation, it could be well over 50%, uh, which is a problem because if the low interest yield environment stays, it means that for the next five years, uh, CTAs might not produce this extra cash return that they were generating uh, on the you know, civil let's say. Sure, true. Um, now, I also wanted to ask you another question, uh, which I think is really, really important. And that is, I mean, you've been in hundreds of due diligence meetings and you've probably had as many uh, conference calls and and so on and so forth with investors and potential investors uh, answering thousands of questions but i want to ask you what is the what is the question in your mind that investors should ask you but they never do and this is in a sense to to help them better understand your strategy? Is there something they're missing? Because part of why we're having this conversation today is to trying to ask different questions than the typical questions you get. I believe investors are too focused and too concerned about so-called headline risk. Uh, If they invest with blue chips, they know that if they lose money with blue chips, no one will say a word because, well, a big firm lost their money. No, things happen. If they lose money with a smaller manager, it could be a problem because people might around them might say, well, why did you allocate to this manager? And why did you lose money with that manager? Uh, so I think investors should first be concerned about how liquid their investment is. Can, are they controlling the money? Let's say it's a, it's a managed account. They, they clearly control the money. If they invest via the platform, let's say Deutsche Bank, they, they clearly are safe. Uh, even if they invest via the offshore fund uh, or, or domestic fund, if the third parties involved in this uh, fund are you know, very reputable institutions like you know, KPMG, the auditor, or SSNC, the administrator, and the custodians are, you know, Bank of America and Wells Fargo and New Edge. Clearly, they have very limited risk in terms of some kind of a fraud or ability to get their money back. So uh, they should not be, I believe, it's my opinion, sure. uh, as concerned about the so-called reputational risk, they should be more concerned about how to build their portfolios. And partially the reason the fund of funds business model failed because the, unfortunately, the managers that were running the fund of funds, they were not building the right portfolios. Uh, they were either too much concentrated in similar names that have, let's say, 60-70% correlation to one another or you know, for, 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 for other reasons. Uh, uh, if they were doing a, a good job, if they were really building uh, you know, 
portfolios uh, that would withstand you know, difficult periods for different managers. I think the whole concept, you know, is a good concept. It's just, you know, it was not applied properly. So uh, I would say if investors are convinced that they their money is safe, they should be more concentrated and concerned about a particular strategy and how it performs and how it adds to the you know to their portfolio rather than uh, looking at some potential headline risk that you know that you know might never <laughs> real be realized and uh, at the end of the day they could be suffering uh, in terms of the real returns for their investors you know, that, that's 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 that that's a pity I believe sure Sure. No, absolutely. Now, I, the final section that I have is, is 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 something I call general and fun. So a little bit sort of outside the the norm and 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 not specifically related to uh, you know a model or trading program. But I I just want to to ask you uh, you know a couple of things that might be useful for people to 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 understand. And uh, and one of the things I wanted to uh, to ask you just is just for for the benefit of people who are listening to this and and hoping to become the next uh, systematic alpha and that is you know what does it take to become a a, a great trader or or a great CTA in your opinion well, I think you have to have an edge of some sort uh, in, in our case we are occupying a certain niche of, 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 of a certain you know, certain trading model that we believe is sustainable but I'm sure there could be other uh, interesting uh, niche ideas that are not exploited at the moment. Uh, so for, for for new people that are entering this this area, if you have the right idea and if you believe that you're better at that idea than others, and if you work extremely hard, uh, you know ultimately you will become successful. Uh, the the road is not easy by any means, but if if you are different from others. That's the only way I believe to, to, to succeed. Sure, sure. And uh, since, uh, as I said in in the very beginning, this is also about getting to to know you as 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 a person to the people listening. So I wanted to ask you a little bit of a of a sort of a, a different question, and that is, do you have any sort of personal habits that you think have helped you become successful in in this uh, business over the years? Well, just trying to keep my head clear. You know, I, I, as I said before, uh, Alexi and I have very different skills. Uh, I do not have quantitative skills at all, even though <laughs> I talked about our research and sure. uh, how to do things. But uh, I'm, I'm scratching the surface. Alexi is the real quant. Yeah. My, my biggest strength is I mentioned it. It's so-called common sense, trying to. Uh, understand what's what is good what is not good what what makes sense what doesn't make sense and sometimes i am involved in our research process by simply directing our research where to look at or what kind of ideas to possibly exploit uh, i personally cannot backtest them myself sure I don't have the skills but i i have this ability to to, to see things and to 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 challenge certain certain things that we do and to pinpoint some other areas that we could be you know underlooking or we should improve and uh, this is my contribution to the research I would say uh, sure sure and and as a business person if we look at it that way but also as a as an entrepreneur which is obviously part of of the journey you've been through what do you think has been your biggest Failure. I know we talk a lot about successes and people celebrate that, but often failures are the ones where we learn the most. And if you look back on 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 your path, what would you say was the biggest failure, and and um, and and what would you have done differently uh, today? Well, the biggest failure, no question, happened in two thousand eleven uh, when we were unable to hold the assets that we had. We uh, should have probably intervened earlier. We should have reduced risk earlier. We should be should have been more proactive with our clients, explaining what what is happening. So before 2011, 
we had very few mistakes, I would say. And that's why we were able to grow our assets to a very sizable amount. And in 2011, as you mentioned before, it was a combination of bad performance, totally new environment, and assets leaving that unfortunately we did not handle the way we should have uh, in retrospect. Um, at the same time, all the changes and improvements that we implemented made us stronger. Uh, our team is intact. Most our members have stayed with us for six, seven, eight years. So I'm happy about that. Yeah. And, uh, overall, and again, I, I will repeat myself, I strongly believe that we are a better firm, a better manager. We would do better things uh, today compared to 2011 when we were a lot bigger. Uh, but it comes with, I guess, experience. Um, and uh, I think we have a lot of it. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. And... Um... In order to end on a high note, I want to uh, my my last question to you, um, where I've had some 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 interesting answers. Let's put it that way from from other guests. I wanted to ask if you could tell me a a funny fact or a fun fact about yourself that most people don't know about you, and and I can and and I can I can reveal that some people have told me that they've been in movies or they do in personations of of you know so it's been very varied but if there's something out there where you say actually you know this is something that most people wouldn't know about me is there anything you can share about 10 years ago i was uh writing lyrics which uh i believe are very very good although i started writing them in 94 and i ended stopped writing them in 94 what the, so 20 years ago. Wow. wow. <laughs> uh, and uh, when I read some of these lyrics to you know some of my friends, they, they are shocked uh, yeah. how how good they were. And they're asking me, why don't I do it again? Yeah. And uh, it's hard to say. I had inspiration and it disappeared you know? <laughs> 20 <laughs> years ago. Uh, I'm, I'm a business person now. I was a, you know, a young boy then. Uh, <laughs> play guitar. Uh, I like to sing. Lots of things I can tell you sure. about my first, <laughs> but maybe some other time. <laughs> that would be the that's that's for our next uh, for our next uh, podcast, uh, Peter. I wanted to um, before we finish, I wanted to uh, ask if you could tell the listeners what's the best place to reach out to you and learn more about your firm and, of course the new offering that you're coming out with in terms of a usage fund? Well, we do have a website, uh, systematicalpha.com. Um, we also have our marketing director, Sandy Chotai, uh, who can be reached at 646-825-8075. He is uh, very good in explaining what we do, how we do things. Um, we are coming out with the USITS uh, project, with USITS fund. Uh, very few CTAs have USITS because their programs do not apply under the USITS rules because a lot of them trade commodities. And in our case, uh, most of the trading that we do is in global equity indices and currency futures. And uh, uh, basically, we will be doing the USITS project we, for, for two reasons. Uh, a, demand from European investors, and B, from the regulatory standpoint, uh, it's becoming more and more difficult for you know, US-based managers to come to Europe and to market their, themselves. Uh, once we have usage, uh, you know, it's not a problem at all. So this is why we're doing it. Uh, but yeah, we have our website. We we have a very good in-house marketing director that will that can answer any questions. Uh, and so please reach out and we will respond sure fantastic uh peter thanks thanks ever so much for for your time today and and also thanks for um i think a great conversation i i really appreciate that you've been very open and and willing to share your insights and and your views on 
on the uh, evolution of your firm and your your strategy as as well as the industry as a whole. I think that that is so important. So I appreciate that, and and I hope that our listeners will find a, a way to to thank you as well, whether it's social media or by contact contacting you directly. Um, and of course, the listeners can find uh, a lot of details about our discussion today uh, in the show notes on, on the website, toptradersunplugged.com. And I hope we can connect at a later date and uh, see where you are and all the great work that you do. Sounds excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care, Peter. Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.